Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Before I forget, I want to encourage you families and parents of kids in elementary school. So next week is family week. I was expecting to show up today and the stage was looking all, you know, like VBS style and I'd have to somehow transition and act like, you know, I recognize that, but it's not up there. But next week, family week begins. And let me just say this. Uh, I told first service, if, if, uh, if you're a parent and you've got kids and you don't participate in family week, there's something wrong with you. I'll say it a little nicer for you uh, second service people. I'll just say this. Um, if you don't participate in family week, like, and you're in town, right, if you're just at home next Sunday through Wednesday, just chilling there, uh, there's something wrong with you. All right, I won't say it nicer. <laughs> I'll say the same, all right? But here's why, here's why, okay? So this is a fantastic opportunity. One, the theme of Family Week this year is all about how our children don't have to wait until they grow up to follow Jesus and help other people follow Jesus, right? Like being a disciple and making disciples is not something specifically reserved for the adults, you know? Like for those, for us serious, sophisticated, like no, this is, this is something that kids can step into and can embrace for their lives. And so this is a great opportunity to help them see God's calling on their life and a great opportunity for us as parents to also be invested in, to know how can we disciple our children in such a way that they can embrace God's calling for the life as well. So before I forget, if you are able to make it, I would highly encourage you, go onto the website, the events page, and sign your family up for Family Week. It begins next Sunday. You are not going to regret the time that you invested in yourself and in your children. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open to 1 John, the book of 1 John. And if you don't know where 1 John is, just go to the very end of your Bible, and you hit Revelation, and just back up a little bit. And 1st through 3rd John is where we're going to be this summer uh, in our preaching series. We're back into our regular cadence of walking through the scriptures section by section, chapter by chapter, and we're going to be going through the books of 1st through 3rd John. Now, if you were with us a few years ago, you'll remember that we went through the gospel of John. And what John does, John is very kind to us in all of what he writes in his gospel and in his letter. He's very kind to us because he doesn't leave up to interpretation why he's writing. He comes out very explicitly and tells us as a reader why he's writing. And in the gospel of John, we got to the end of that book in chapter 20, and he told us explicitly why he was writing his gospel. He said this, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the reason John wrote the gospel of John was so that the reader would come to believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the Son of God, the one in whom salvation is found. And now we get to John, first through third John, which isn't his gospel, but our letters. And now he's writing to believers. And we're going to see as we go through these books, he actually says several different at several different points why he's writing, but he gets kind of towards the end and he kind of sums it up in this way. And he says, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now notice the difference there. 
in his gospel, he's writing so that they would believe. But now in his letter, he's writing to those who have already believed, but now he's writing so that they would know that they have eternal life. Not just that they would believe, but that they would have the assurance of that belief. Now, why is this important? Well, this is important because by the time that John gets to writing his letters here in 1st through 3rd John, there have been quite a few people leaving the church and leaving the faith, just totally walking away. Perhaps a modern way to describe it would be that by the time that John is writing these letters, there are many people that he is now talking to who are believers who have watched a lot of their friends de-church and deconstruct their faith. And so these believers are looking around, seeing all of these people who were once as committed to Jesus as they are, and now they're watching these people go from loving Jesus and loving the church to exploring different philosophies, to distancing themselves from the church, to ultimately walking away altogether. And now... John is writing to these believers to help them avoid following the same false teaching that many of their friends are now following, to help them avoid following the false teaching and to help them know that their faith is genuine. Because the big question that they were wrestling with then is a very similar question to a big question that we can wrestle with now. And that question is, how can I know that I'm actually a Christian? How can I know that I'm actually a Christian, especially when I have watched people, when I have watched mentors of mine who were stronger Christians than I would have ever claimed to be, and yet they've walked away from the faith? How in the world can I know that I'm legit? How can I know that I'm for real? How can I know that this, this whole faith thing is actually at work in my life? You see, what they were experiencing then is not a far cry from what we continue to experience today. Because the reality is, is that right now, as we sit here right now, in 2023, 40 million people, around 40 million people, have de-churched. And when I say, I mean, I've, 40 million Americans have de-churched. That, what that means is that, and that's not, that's not in the history of America, that's today. That's in the last 10 to 15 years, there have been about 40 million Americans who once identified as believers, who once were connected to and involved in a local church, who within the last 10 to 15 years have totally walked away. And so it's very possible that with about 15% of the American population having walked away from the church in the last 10 to 15 years, it's very, very possible that you know someone who has walked away from the church and has walked away from the faith, who have de-churched or deconstructed. Or perhaps maybe for you, you're sitting here and you are currently in a season where you yourself are wrestling with doubts, where you yourself are feeling shaky in your faith. Maybe you've read some things, maybe you've listened to some podcasts, maybe you've watched some YouTube videos, and you're beginning to wonder not only if Christianity is real, but if you're for real as a Christian, if this whole Christian thing is even for you. Now, if that's you, I wanna say two things. One. 
I just want to encourage you to say out loud to some fellow believers around you those doubts that you're experiencing and the questions that you have and the thing that you're walking through. It can be very easy when you're in that spot to be very afraid of actually verbalizing that in the context of Christian community. And I just want you to know that we want this to be a safe place where you can do that so that we can come alongside you, not to preach at you or hit you over the head with stuff, but to just walk alongside you to try to find good answers to those good questions. So I'd say that as the first thing. The second thing I would say is that my prayer for you, if that's where you're at, is that as we walk through 1 John, my prayer is that you would stick with us this summer. And my hope is that by the time we get to the end of the summer, that you would be, that you would be able to walk away from this series with a little more confidence and a little more courage, knowing that your faith is for real. So as we start off first John, in these first 10 verses, we're going to see three things. I want to show you three things from these first 10 verses. Uh, for the, you note takers, you might like this. I will say though, uh, point three has five sub points. So maybe it's eight things. Three sounds better. Uh, so it's three things. Uh, the first thing is the reality of faith. The second thing is the reason for faith. And the third thing are the results of faith. The reality of faith, the reason for faith, and the results of faith. Now, I'm going to spend most of my time here on the first one and less on the second and third because uh, I know we would like to have dinner at home and not right here. So, First, the reality of faith. Uh, I want to read for you the first three verses here of John chapter, 1 John chapter 1. And as I read, I want you to notice how many times John refers to a real-life sensory experience. Check this out. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands— Concerning the word of life, that life was revealed, and we have seen it, and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you so that you may also have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So at least six times in these first three verses, John goes out of his way to communicate the tangible, real-life sensory experiences that he and the apostles had as it relates to Jesus Christ and his rising from the dead. Now, you see, like I said, John is writing his letter here to bring assurance to, the, to believers that their faith is for real. But John is, uh, is not interested in any way of assuring any believer of blind faith. He isn't interested in assuring people of blind faith. You see, the word faith often gets a bad rap in our world, right? Like faith in, in our post-enlightenment, scientific method-loving society, often the word faith is, is equated with uh, blind belief. It's kind of like, for a long time, you, you could say that, that the approach towards faith or the approach towards belief or the approach toward Christianity is, was perhaps seeing it as kind of like a placebo. You know what a placebo is? We, we have these friends who were some of our first friends when we moved here, and uh, they, they, had, they had two boys, uh, really good friends with them. He worked at Deer, transferred to Ankeny. Now they live in Des Moines. Um, but I remember their two boys at the time uh, were deathly afraid of monsters, 
deathly afraid. There, there were monsters under the bed, monsters in the closet, monsters behind the curtains, monsters in the chandeliers. There were monsters in the toilet, monsters everywhere. They, they're, and especially at night, right? You parents can maybe relate to this, where it's like, and the thing with these boys was that no amount of checking, no amount of looking, no amount of trying to scare away, nothing that they did could assuage these boys of the fear that they had of the monsters that were surely going to eat them once mom and dad left. They just knew it. They knew once Jordan and Chelsea walked out the door, said goodnight, that that was the last time that they were going to see their parents this side of heaven because the monsters were coming, right? Until one day, our friend Chelsea discovered a miraculous new product. That product is called Monster Spray. Now, Monster Spray was guaranteed to be 100% effective of repelling monsters within a hundred yard radius of wherever it was sprayed. And so every night, Jordan or Chelsea would spray monster spray on the pillow and on the blankets of both of their boys. And you could also say that these boys became, uh, let's just say emotionally and psychologically dependent on monster spray. <laughs> They had to have it. Like, they could not sleep without it. Now, what the boys didn't know was that this miraculous product that our friend Chelsea found uh, was actually just water and lavender in a spray bottle. And only lavender so you could smell that it was there. But they needed to have it. They couldn't live without it. In fact, they thought they would die without it. Now, you see, there are many people who view the Christian faith as, at best, a more sophisticated version of monster spray. Like, I'm glad that that works for you. If that's what you need to sleep well at night, fine. But don't, don't expect me to pretend like this whole faith thing is actually real. Like, don't expect me to believe or to have faith in that kind of thing because faith really is just simply believing in something you can't prove to be true, right? Like, isn't faith as, isn't, isn't faith what Mark, Mark Twain supposedly said where he says, faith is believing what you know ain't true. That's the way many people view faith and the Christian faith. But what we have here at the very beginning of John's letter is that John is coming right out of the gate and making it abundantly clear to the believers then and to us today that this Jesus, the very foundation of our faith, that who he is and what he did is not something to be taken on blind faith, but instead is something that is historically verifiable. You see, over and over and over again, John is telling the believers that he saw it with his own eyes. He heard it with his own ears. He touched the evidence with his own hands. See, remember, John was one of the disciples at the empty tomb, along with Peter and Mary and the other women, that he was there with them and saw the empty tomb for himself. Now, consider this. After Jesus' resurrection, 
why did the angel move the stone away from the entrance to the tomb? Why? We know that in the accounts, that the accounts say that an angel rolled the stone away. But the question is, why? Why did the angel roll the stone away? Was it, was it really to let Jesus out? Like, was Jesus risen from the dead on the other side of this stone waiting for his Uber to arrive? Was he on the other side of this rock just kind of like knocking on it to let the angel know like, all right, I'm ready. You can let me out now. Was it because Jesus Christ, this one who calmed the sea, this one who turned water into wine, this one who raised the dead to life, who fed thousands with five loaves and two fish, this son of God who, create, who created all things by the word of his power and upholds all things by the word of his power, who by him and through him and to him were all things created, did the angel move the stone away because Jesus couldn't move away a stone that he himself created? not only that, but we, there's actually nowhere in the gospel accounts do we see that once, that once the angel rolled the stone away, that Jesus then walked out. In fact, if you read the account in Matthew chapter 28, what we actually see is that Jesus is long gone on his way to Galilee by the time that the angel comes to roll the stone away. So Why? Why did the angel roll the stone away from the tomb? Could it be that it wasn't to let Jesus out, but it was to let you and me in? I mean, imagine if the angel hadn't rolled the stone away. So imagine this scenario. John, Peter, Mary, women show up. Stone is not rolled away. Angel's sitting on top of it. The angel goes... Not here. He's gone. Would they have still believed? Perhaps. I mean, an angel, an angel's probably fairly convincing, right, at that point. But would anyone else have believed it? Very likely not. Everyone else who heard about it probably wouldn't have been nearly as open to the possibility. But you see what we get with not just an empty tomb, but an open tomb is an invitation to not blindly believe, but to come and see for ourselves. And John was one of those people who saw the evidence for himself. Now, you might, you might be the kind of person who say, well, that's nice for him. I can't go and see for myself. Now, I'm kind of more of a believe, you know, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it kind of person. If that's you, can I, can I just ask you to consider that you aren't, that, that you aren't being asked to choose bet between believing what you can see or believing what no one has seen. But instead, you're simply being asked to consider believing what John, Peter, Mary, and 500 other eyewitnesses saw for themselves. So that's the reality of faith. The reality of faith is that the Christian faith is not blind or subjective, but is a faith based on, a, on an event that took place in actual time, space, and history. And it all began with an angel rolling away the stone 
so that we could come and see for ourselves. So the reality of faith. Number two, the reason for faith. I said these last two will go, go a little more quickly. The reason for faith. Look at verse four. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Quite simply, what, what, what John is saying here is that it's not enough that he and the other disciples saw it for themselves. It's not enough that they just believe it for themselves and that they have the joy of Christ and the joy of salvation for themselves. But instead, what he's saying is that this joy is enhanced when it's shared with others. That for all the joy that they had in salvation, that it wasn't nearly the, the degree or the amount of joy that they had in sharing that joy with other people. You see, the reason for faith is that it would produce within us an otherworldly joy that glorifies God to the ends of the earth. That's the reason for faith. But the reason for faith is actually for your joy. And your joy, when you find joy in something, you ultimately end up glorifying the thing that you find joy in. You see, glorify simply means to lift up. It means to take something, to lift it up high so that other people can see the greatness of that thing that you're lifting up. That's, that's all that it means. And so this is how our joy and God's glory are not at odds with one another. Because the more that we find joy in something, the more we want to share it with other people. This is why, this is why you share those stupid YouTube videos that you're just like, this is hilarious, right? It's like, and it's, it's hilarious when you're watching it. Isn't it more funny when you're watching someone else watch it? right? Don't you enjoy it more? Because now their enjoyment of what you find enjoyment in enhances your joy in that thing. This is why by the time that I saw, I don't remember which one, I'm not really into the movies, I suppose. I, I went to see a Spider-Man movie um, with, uh, with Dalton and, and uh, Jordan Broda. And by the time that uh, we went to the theater, Dalton had already seen it three times, but why was he going again? It's because, why, why do you watch a movie you've, you've already seen already with other people? It's because when you enjoy something, you enjoy it more when you enjoy it with other people. And you watch them enjoy it. This is why those of you, this is why you new parents cannot stop telling us about the abundantly normal things your baby is learning how to do. <laughs> And I get it, right? It makes sense. It's like, yeah, they might have said that word. I don't think they did, but I'm glad, I'm happy for you. You know, like, this is why. Because you're finding enjoyment in your children. So, you, so everyone else needs to find enjoyment in your children, right? This is how joy and glory work together. Do you see what this means? This means that your joy in Christ cannot increase all by itself. Your joy in Christ cannot increase all by itself because your joy in Christ was designed to grow in the context of Christian community. This is why you cannot have God as father and not have your fellow believer as brother and sister, which is to say 
that if you abandon the church or if you hold the church at arm's length, you will ultimately end up forfeiting a joy in Christ that can only be yours in the context of Christian community. Because our joy was designed to grow as it is shared. Now, I know for some of you that when I, that when I say holding the church at arm's length, you go, well, Jake, you don't know what my experience has been. You don't know the church that I came from. You don't know the, the leaders that I have been under that have been poor leaders and should have never been in that position. I go, I, you're, you are absolutely right. And I can understand if you're very hesitant to give trust to another church and other leadership. And so for you, I would just say, if you're that person who's holding the church at arm's length because that's your experience, I'd say, that's okay. And can I just encourage you though at the same time to not hold the church at arm's length indefinitely. Because the longer that you reject Christian community, the longer you forfeit an increasing joy in Christ that can only be yours in the context of an albeit imperfect Christian community. So the reality of faith, the reason for faith, and now the result of faith. I just want to point out three results of a vibrant, genuine, growing faith. Now we're going to see these all throughout the book of 1 John, so I'm not going to elaborate a ton on them, but what we see here are three results of faith our proper behavior, genuine fellowship, and an accurate assessment of ourselves. That if, if, you want, if you want some external markers of the genuineness of your faith, the reality of your faith, here's three of them. Proper behavior, genuine fellowship, and an accurate assessment of ourselves. So we see proper behavior here in verse six. Look at verse six. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. That is to say that if you claim to be a Christian, but then you have no interest in living like one, then perhaps you're fooling yourself. Now, no, now notice what I didn't say. What I didn't say is, if you claim to be a Christian and you don't go to church, then you're not a Christian. Though Christian community is incredibly important. We just established that. What I said was, if you claim to be a Christian, and yet there's no indication of that faith actually being brought to bear on the way that you live your life, the way that you make decisions, the things that you do, the things that you approve of, then perhaps you aren't actually what you claim to be. Proper behavior. Number two, genuine fellowship. Look at verse seven. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. No, notice how interesting this is. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, then we will have fellowship with one another. It's, it's not always the case, but there is very often a correlation between an increase of sin in someone's life and a decrease of desire to be around other believers. It is often the case that, that when I sit across from someone who has slowly but surely, not, not just, not like, not like angrily or antagonistically, but just slowly but surely kind of floated away from our church 
It's like, man, I haven't seen them in a while. I, want, I just want to see how they're doing. It's often the case that part of that drifting away coincides with an increase of the exploration of sinful desires in their life. The health of your faith will often be connected to your desire for fellowship with other believers. If you don't desire to be in community with other believers, what we see here is that that is actually a symptom of an issue that may be existing within your fellowship with God himself. That isn't to say you aren't a Christian, but it is to say you, may, you, you likely don't have a healthy relationship with God if you don't have a healthy relationship with other believers. Those are inextricably linked in scripture. So proper behavior, genuine fellowship, and finally an accurate assessment of ourselves. That's verse eight and 10. Look at verse eight and 10. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then jump down to verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. What's he saying? He's saying if we deny or diminish our sin or our sinfulness, then we are making God a liar. You see, many of us, the, the way that the Bible describes the human condition apart from Christ is that we are those who walk in darkness. Now, many of us, though, probably don't self-identify as those who walk in darkness. It, at best, we perhaps identify as those who walk in dusk. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, I'm not perfect, but I'm not, I'm not that bad, right? Like, I've got, you know, I've got things to work on, but, you know, darkness is pretty harsh, right? Isn't it kind of just like a little bit of dark, like sunset, you know? You can kind of see, you kind of can't see. But to diminish or deny our sin and our sinfulness apart from Christ is to call God a liar. Now, now you say, how, how is that calling God a liar? Well, to say that you aren't a sinner or to say that your sin isn't really that bad or that big of a deal is to say that God was confused or that God was overreacting when he sent Jesus to die for a problem that you say you actually don't have. You say, how can I tell if, if I don't accurately assess myself? There are many ways. Uh, I'll say one way though, to tell whether you actually accurately assess the nature of your own sin is how, how quick and how able are you to forgive others when they sin against you? Do you hold grudges? Are you someone that just can't let things go? Or maybe not things go, but there's like, there's like a couple things that you're just like, Nope, not letting that go. I have put that person, I have put those people in a prison cell in my heart and there is no way that they will ever get out. There is no price that they could ever pay to ever get out of that cell that I've put them in in my heart. Uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was, a, he was a writer in the Soviet Union, 
And he was actually imprisoned by Joseph Stalin for writing, uh, basically writing against Stalin in a personal letter to a friend. Uh, spent, spent about eight years in prison uh, under uh, Stalin's reign, I suppose, and experienced some of, the, some of the worst atrocities that one could ever experience. And he, he outlines this, his whole experience in, in a three-part uh, series called the Gulag Archipelago. And, and just as he's getting to the point where you would expect that this guy who has experienced such tremendous atrocities, uh, such tremendous evil at the hands of others, just when you would expect that he would begin to turn the corner and just start like railing against them, he gets to this point and he says this, he says, so let the reader who expects this book to be a political expose slam its covers shut right now. If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and to destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. You see, what Solzhenitsyn had the wisdom to see, he eventually became an atheist, by the way, but even then, he could still see that his oppressors, that those evil people over there, that the seed that caused them, that sprouted within them, and that caused them to do the evil atrocities against himself, that that same seed lives within every human heart. That his enemies and oppressors were not at all unlike him. And that given the opportunity, that he very well could have committed the same atrocities and done the same things that they had. That he was not unlike his oppressors. Uh, Miroslav Volf once said something to the effect of, I'm going to probably butcher it, but it was something to the effect of, we are unable to forgive people when we remove others from the community of humans and, we, and when we remove ourselves from the community of sinners. Perhaps the reason why you hold grudges, perhaps the reason why you find it so hard to forgive is because you actually don't understand the depth and reality of your sin and the greatness of the grace of God towards you in your sin. You see, those who have received much grace will be able to assess themselves rightly, to recognize the greatness of that grace and to turn around and extend that same grace to others. So, how should we walk away from a message like this? These intro messages for series are a little difficult because it's kind of broad and then kind of fly over a lot of different points. Then you can kind of walk out of there going like, I learned a lot about, you know, the context and a few things, but how does this actually hit the ground in my life? Now notice, John's goal is not to make everyone who reads his letter walk away 
totally paranoid and unsure about whether or not they're Christians, right? As we walk through 1 John, there are going to be plenty of points where you're going to feel like that's John's goal. Because you're probably going to go like, man, if this is what's true of Christians, that's nothing like how I live. How in the world could I actually ever know if I'm a Christian? That's not John's goal. Now, perhaps for some of you, as I said before, that may be precisely the question you need to ask yourself as we go through this series. That if there's no indication of the Christian faith actually coming to bear in your life, you need to seriously consider whether or not you actually are a Christian. Perhaps some of you need to ask that question. But John's goal and the goal of this series is not that we would be less sure of our salvation, but instead that we would be more sure of it. And so, believer, two things as you walk away from this message. Two things to remember. One, recognize that your faith is not a blind faith, but is a faith that God sovereignly brought about in time, space, and history. See and recognize that though God doesn't reveal to us everything, God God does not in Scripture, certainly, does not answer every possible question you would ever want to ask it. There's some questions that the Bible is not interested in answering. But recognize that while God has not revealed everything to us, he has revealed enough to us to understand who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done and to receive that for ourselves, not on the basis of blind faith, but on the reality of verifiable evidence that who Jesus is and what he did happened in time, space, and history. Recognize that being a Christian doesn't mean that you have to be ignorant. It doesn't mean that you have to be naive. But recognize that there are good answers to the questions that you or your friends and family have as it relates to Christianity. So that's number one. And then finally, number two, recognize that your assurance of salvation does not ultimately come from the quality of your faith, but it ultimately comes from the object of your faith. Your assurance of salvation does not come from the quality of your faith. You say, how in the world can someone like me actually be a Christian? One day, I love Jesus, I love the Bible, I love walking in obedience, and the the next day, 24 hours later, I'm a completely different person. I wake up and I don't, I, I don't love God. I don't want to read the scriptures. I, I'm a horrible person to my friends, neighbors, family, coworkers. How can someone like that, who is so clumsy in the Christian walk, how could I ever know that I'm actually a Christian? Recognize that your assurance of salvation is not in the quality of your faith and is not in the quality of your faithfulness but is in the object of your faith, Jesus Christ, and his faithfulness to you. That the fact when you are unsure, he is sure. That when you are unstable, he is stable. That when you are unreliable, that his blood is still reliable and is still sufficient to cover your sins. It's not determined by your faithfulness, but it's determined by the faithfulness of the one who said here in verse nine, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So believer, trust in the one who cleanses. 
and continue in the grace of joyful and albeit often imperfect obedience. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we look to you, the author and finisher of our faith. Oh, we thank you that our assurance is not in our own faithfulness, but is in yours. That though we stumble clumsily along, that you faithfully live the life that we should have lived. You faithfully took the wrath of God towards sin that we deserved. And you faithfully rose again to bring victory and salvation and assurance to people like us. Oh, Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the assurance of faith that we can have in you and your finished work. We pray in your name, amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.